Well, I could have had you guys open your Bibles with me, please, to John chapter 9. Hopefully you're there already. John chapter 9. If you're new with us, we've been going verse by verse through um, this incredible gospel of John. It's really, it's really been such a joy of mine uh, preparing each week for all of you. And really, the gospel of John is like all the texts have just an endless treasure trove of biblical truth for us in this divinely inspired book about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the verses that we'll be covering today really don't need a whole lot of explaining. This is one of these texts that could come quite challenging. It's a pretty uh, straightforward text. doesn't appear to be some sort of um, deep theological argument to be made here. In fact, on the service, uh, you'll sort of be tempted just to read this and read it just as a miraculous story. Nothing wrong with that. It's a, it's a great story. Um, You'll remember last week the chapter opens when Jesus sees a man. He's leaving the temple. The man has been blind since birth. Jesus spits in the dirt, makes a little mud out of it, and anoints the blind man's eyes. Jesus then tells the man to go to the pool of Siloam and go wash off his eyes. and, And, of course, the man comes back seeing Never having spoke to Jesus, never having seen Jesus. It's a miraculous story, one that is uh, divinely orchestrated, Scripture says, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. But as we zoom out and we begin to examine this text as a whole, we begin to see there's more going on here than just a miracle of physical sight. Later, we will see there's a much greater miracle to be had resulting in the man's spiritual sight. But in between the physical healing and the man's ultimate transformation lies the investigation of the Pharisees into this supposed miracle. It is truly a demonstration of unbelief and belief. In fact, John is constantly comparing for us belief and unbelief as he exposes the stark differences between them. And this section of text is certainly no different. But in today, verses 13 through 34, we begin to see the groundwork being laid out as the Pharisees once again enter into our story. By this time, you've probably come to expect That what would a divine miracle be without the appearance of this antagonistic group of religious leaders called the Pharisees? The Pharisees represent for us, in a nutshell, Israel's state of blindness, of unbelief. The Gospel of John is often referred to as the Gospel of Belief, or the Gospel of Believing. Nearly a hundred times in 21 chapters, His verses call us to believe, to believe. And it is the very purpose behind John's commission to 
uh, write this gospel, as he tells us near the end of his gospel in chapter 20, that these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The gospel of John, which emphasizes over and over again that you must believe, also chronicles for us much of Israel's unbelief. Remember, in the opening chapter of John, John 1, verse 11, Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. They received him not. That, by and large, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And so we end up seeing in this text the call of Jesus to believe in him set much in the context of unbelief. So as belief and unbelief collide in these stories, we begin to see the characteristics of how unbelief reacts when faced with the truth of Jesus Christ. And as I mentioned last week, if you haven't read the story before, or if it's been a while, I think that you'll really come to love the story. And you'll love the man and the resolve and the boldness that this man demonstrates as he faces off against a group of the elite religious leaders of Israel, this beggar, this blind man. And though he hasn't come yet in our story to a full saving faith in Christ, his boldness for declaring the truth that thus far has been revealed to him should certainly inspire us as we preach to an unbelieving world. So let's read the passage today, once all the way through, and I broke it down into sort of three easy sections for us to look at afterwards. Last week we ended at verse 12, so um, we'll pick up at verse 13. John chapter 9, verse 13. This is the reading of God's holy and living word. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind, Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. And the man said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? The man said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. And so they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son? who you say was born blind, how then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, 
For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered them, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Unable to comprehend the supernatural healing of this once blind man, some of the neighbors trying to make sense of all this bring this man to who, who else? You guessed it, but the Pharisees. The Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are mentioned six times in this one passage of Scripture. And as you know by now, the Pharisees were the very people who in the previous two chapters were the ones conspiring to kill Jesus and have him arrested in the intent to put him to death. The Pharisees were really the inner elite of the nation of Israel. They were the most committed and devoted themselves to upholding the traditions of Judaism. In fact, they even created their own sets of rules referred to in Mark chapter 7 as the traditions of the elders. The term Pharisee actually means separatist. They were the separated ones and separate from those filthy sinners. That's why they said to Jesus in Luke chapter 5 and elsewhere, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Speaking of the Lord. They had essentially removed themselves from all the muck and the mire of the world as an attempt to be holy. But as we see this interrogation unfold, they have completely missed part of God's law and now live in a perverted man-made version of it and are more blind to the works of God than this blind man ever was. So let's walk through the passage now, beginning in verses 13 and 14 in the Pharisees' problem. In verses 13, they, 
the the day here refers to the neighbors and the people referred to last week that we read in the first 12 verses. They were the ones who passed by the blind man who was a beggar. They would have known this man for certainly a considerable amount of time, seen him outside the temple courts, likely at the gates, begging every single day. And they have now witnessed that he sees. So they, the neighbors, the people, brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Now, this is the last place you want to be. You'd never want to be questioned by a group of Pharisees. All right. Now, why the people brought him here is only speculation. Uh, Perhaps they were looking for some sort of spiritual guidance as to some sort of explanation as what has happened. This has never happened before. The blind weren't healed and suddenly able to see. Well, however innocent this may have started, verse 14 gives us some important information, some background context that we didn't see earlier in our study of this text. Notice that it says it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Um, Just as it was with the miraculous healing back in chapter 5, the pool of Bethesda, Jesus once again heals a man on the Sabbath. And this was a major problem with some of the Pharisees. And once more, Jesus had transgressed their man-made traditions and laws. Therefore, breaking the Sabbath, which was the essentially uh, the linchpin to their entire religious system. Because not only did they try to keep the biblical definition of rest, from the scriptures, but they were so narrow in their thinking and so meticulous in every little detail as they made fences around fences around fences, making the once uh, rules and laws and traditions further and further away with more rules and regulations so you wouldn't even be tempted to come close to um, breaking one. These were added and documented to the oral law, the oral traditions, these were additions to the written word of God. And it just stockpiled more and more and more rules. And at the heart of it all, not only were you not to work, but anything that even resembled work was strictly forbidden. The Mishnah, which categories, well, there's 39 categories uh, listed with hundreds of subcategories. I read quite a bit of it. It's unbelievable as they list all the different types of labor that was strictly forbidden. Talk about straining a gnat and swallowing a herd of camels. No biblical text reference. Now, what's really interesting about this is this might help explain why Jesus did the miracle the way he chose to do it. We speculated a little bit last week why the spit and the dirt. Jesus could have just pronounced that his eyes see and they would have been able to see. But 
Jesus spits on the ground, and remember, he, he mixes the spit into the dirt, and he, he makes a, a mud, a clay. Well, this likely would have been considered breaking their Sabbath tradition, because no kneading, K-N-E-A-D-I-N-G, no kneading was allowed. You couldn't knead dough, or anything for that matter, for it might appear to others that you were working. Another violation was the actual healing itself. You couldn't help anyone get better on the Sabbath unless it was a life-threatening situation. If a person was dying, you could sort of prevent them from dying, but not enough to make them get better. I, I kid you not. That would be a violation of the oral law and tradition of the elders. So these Pharisees are, are like piranhas ready to devour the Lord Jesus Christ. Forget the fact that Jesus healed the man and performed an act of mercy. He had broken their little man-made religious rules. And this is the kind of legalistic Phariseeism that is always the stench of death in any person's life, in any church, in any ministry. There is no recovery from becoming a legalistic Pharisee apart from hardcore repentance because it goes beyond Scripture and it elevates your own little rules about what it constitutes to be a good Christian. And it raises it to the same level as the inerrant, infallible word of the living God. Now, none of us want to be the progressive Christians either and be broader than the truth. But at the same time, there is zero virtue of being narrower than the truth. In fact, oftentimes, this is even more subtle and therefore it is even more dangerous within the church. And I can assure you, Phariseeism is still alive and well today and has been used by the devil to lure many unsuspecting victims away from the truth and into legalistic forms of religion, which is the furthest thing from the heart of God. So that was the Pharisees' problem. But the Pharisees have just gotten started. Now comes time for the interrogation of this man who was born blind. Now you think after all of their study of the scrolls of the great prophet Isaiah, Don just mentioned we spent quite a bit of time in our Thursday group in the prophet's writings. And you would have thought that they would have hoisted up this man and celebrated this miraculous healing and singing the hallelujah chorus. Not that this man could see. You think there'd be some rejoicing? Nope. Not by a Pharisee, no way. We want you as miserable as we are. Notice in verse 15. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received the sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Pretty straightforward. So <laughs> this, this begins their investigation. It becomes apparent rather quickly. They're not actually searching for the truth here. They're really not searching for any truth. They're going to interrogate this man in order to dig up some dirt on the Lord Jesus Christ so that they can condemn them. They're just going to use this man as a little 
pawn in their game of destruction of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Pharisees do. They, 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 they never build people up. You'll recognize a Pharisee. They always tear people down. That's a sure sign of a Pharisee, and they stand out like a sore thumb. Now notice what it says in, in verse 16. It says, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. They're referring to Jesus here, not, not the blind man. And they so hate the Lord Jesus. Uh, and notice in your text, they won't even say his name, this man. We'll see this throughout the text. As they're looking down their long, self-righteous noses at the King of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Uh, this is supposed to be an investigation, but it's obvious they've already made up their mind. Uh, they've reached their conclusion in the first two verses. About others said, now, now th this is believed to be other Pharisees, but others said, and, and it, they kind of make sense of this. It's really hard for, for us to understand. This is, this is as miraculous as if it just happened today. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Wow. There, <laughs> there's even a wedge being driven between the Pharisees concerning Christ. Uh, much like we saw back in, in chapter 7, uh, as the crowd was divided over Christ, uh, their reasoning is, well, this doesn't really make any sense. How can a man who is a sinner do this miraculous healing? If, in fact, a, a miracle has happened here, <laughs> this whole thing is just hard for them to pull together. Because Jesus is obviously a sinner. Well, wait, is he? This could be a sign from, from God, couldn't it? No, it's impossible. He doesn't keep our Sabbath traditions. Whatever flicker of light might have been growing there, it's quickly snuffed out as they are caught in this dilemma. Now, the fact that the Pharisee, uh, the, the fact that Jesus is dividing the Pharisees, and yet he's not even there, <laughs> demonstrates just how potent our Lord Jesus Christ is. He's very divisive, very divisive. He's like a sword. So, in verse 17, this section closes as the Pharisees try once more to entrap the man, and, and no doubt... They're after a damning confession against our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17, the, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? Look at, look at the man's bold and, and emphatic reply. He is a prophet. <laughs> a prophet. This, this once blind beggar shows that he's grasped the reality that the spiritually blind Pharisees just refuse to see that, that Jesus must be sent from God. His words reflect a, a growing understanding as to the true identity. Remember, he said in the beginning of the man called Jesus. That's all he knew about this man. 
We've never seen him with his eyes. He's yet to speak to him as far as scripture is concerned. One commentator wrote this. He said, this man's eyes are opening wider. He is beginning to see still more clearly. While the eyes of his judges are becoming clouded over with blinding theological mist. I like that. Now, his knowledge of Jesus is still incomplete. It's still lacking. Um, He has started by calling Jesus a man. Back in verse 11, that's why he knows a a man named Jesus did this. This is all I know. Now he's a prophet in verse 17. This was going to be my outline. Uh, Jesus started as a man. He's gone up to a prophet. And he will become Lord and Savior. Um, But this man has not yet come to this full realization. Jesus hasn't revealed it yet. Who the Christ is to him. Which must take place before the new creation can be birthed. No one will ever be saved who thinks that Jesus is only a prophet. The cults believe that Jesus is a prophet. I mean, Muslims believe that. Mormons believe that. They all believe, recognize that Jesus is a prophet. They'll give him that much. No, Jesus didn't just come claiming to be a prophet. He made himself equal with God. He is the great I am that I am. We've seen him claimed it. So if your trust is that Jesus is only a prophet, then you're like a a drowning man uh, grabbing hold of an anchor that's just going to take you down. No, this man will be completely transformed by the end of this chapter in verse 35 he will declare that jesus is the son of god and then by verse 38 that jesus christ is lord and then he will fall at his feet and he'll worship him and this is necessary in order for him to be genuinely converted uh, from death to life from darkness to light Just like it is necessary for all of us to believe that Jesus is more than a prophet. He's more than a good example. He's more than a good teacher. No, he is the son of God who has come down out of heaven. And you must call on his name in order to be saved. Romans 10.13 For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in Romans chapter 10 verse 9 If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So at this point in this unfolding narrative, this former uh, blind man isn't here yet. He has been healed physically, but not yet spiritually. He can now see with physical eyes, but he does not yet have his spiritual eyes who Jesus truly is in order to put his trust in him and so i don't know where you're at in this sort of broad spectrum but in order for you to have a true saving faith you must come all the way to believe that as john said that jesus is the christ that he is the son of god uh, the lord of heaven and earth and and who after dying on the cross to bear sins for sinners he has been raised from the dead and if you don't believe that cry out to god wherever you are today cry out that he would open your blind heart well in section number two 
the investigation now moves to the man's parents. The man's parents. The Pharisees were unable to get the evidence that they were searching for. There must be some kind of cover-up happening here. There must be some sort of a deception. Uh, we've got to get to the bottom of this. So, so they call the parents. So in verse 18, verse 18, it says, The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and he had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. So the Jews here, uh, it refers to the Pharisees. This is John's uh, designation he uses much through his gospel. Uh, there's no way you're telling us the truth. There, there's no way that this man was born blind. It, this whole story it must be a hoax. Uh, so they call the man's parents. Surely the parents will straighten this whole thing out. So in verse 19, they asked him, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see now? I mean, this really sounds like a courtroom prosecutor. <laughs> and what they're trying to do is punch holes into their son's testimony. Verse 20, his parents answered them. We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. Those were the two questions. Yep, this is our son. Yep, he, he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Now, I have to stop right here and say they're lying. They're lying. They're lying to protect themselves. How do we know that? Look down at verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. What were they afraid of? For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Okay? The reason they said, we don't know, is because they were afraid that if they said what they did know, that, that in fact Jesus had healed their blind son, that they might be thrown out of the synagogue. They knew who did this. They didn't just show up and, and start talking to the Pharisees without speaking to their son first. This is ridiculous. And again, we see the fear. And this is the fear that the Jewish leaders ruled with. They ruled with fear. All right? And they knew what it was to, uh, his parents knew what it was to be thrown out of the synagogue. Their son wasn't allowed, you, you can be assured, their son was never allowed anywhere near that place he was a sinner he was dirty he was condemned the moment he was discovered to be blind they they want to let that dirty person anywhere near them or their synagogue these parents knew what a ban meant now in some ways it's similar to uh, church discipline except it's far far worse you can always just get up and go to another church. To be put out of a synagogue meant to be cut off from all social contact with any family or, fr or friends. It meant to be cut off economically because all your business contacts, rela relationships through the synagogue. So to be put out of the synagogue meant that your whole livelihood was then at stake. So we understand why these parents were so intimidated and fearful and why his parents said in verse 23, 
he is of age, ask him. Though we don't understand their lack of courage to stand with their son. There are certain things that we must be willing to stand for, church. And if it has anything to to do with the person and the work of Christ, I would encourage you to stand for those things. We must be willing to stand on the side of truth regardless of its earthly consequences. So let's go now to our final section for today. Section number three is round two of the formerly blind man. Round two. This is really the best section of all of our text today. As the interrogation of the healed man's parents hasn't budged the testimony of the man himself, the authorities take aim at this man once again in order to snuff out this man's witness to Jesus Christ, that Jesus is in fact a miracle worker and he has healed my blind eyes. I hope his parents at least hung around for this because they could have learned a thing or two from their son. Verse 24. So for the second time, they, this is the Pharisees, called the man who had been blind and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. All right. <laughs> so, now, so now they're demanding that he tell them the truth. This give glory to God this doesn't mean, praise God for what he's done in your life. It's actually a direct quote from Joshua, chapter 7. Remember when the Lord commands Joshua to confront all the tribes of Israel? And he speaks to Achan. The father tells him to go find, ask all the tribes of Israel who had stolen the booty, who had, who had hidden the things they were commanded not to take and Achan and his family had conspired and he had it buried underneath his tents in the sand as they had stolen the spoils of war. Well, Joshua confronts him. Chapter 7, verse 19 of Joshua. I'll put it in your notes. Guess what he says? Give glory to the Lord your God of Israel and tell me what you have done. Joshua confronts Achan. These Pharisees know this story well. They're quoting it. This is a direct quote of Joshua chapter 7. They're saying, before God, own up to it and tell us the truth. And of course, you remember what happened to Achan and his whole family, don't you? Tell us the truth before God. They're not buying any of the neighbor's testimony. They're not uh, buying the, the parents' testimony. They're certainly not buying the man's testimony. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Uh, confess that Jesus has had nothing to do with this miracle. So now in verse 25, he, he picks up on this use of the word no. <laughs> he answered them, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. You just have to love this guy the more that he speaks. Whether he's a sinner or not, I got no idea. 
All I know is this, is I used to be blind, but now I see. A, a man named Jesus touched my eyes. This is all that he knows. This man has changed my life. I'm not backing down. This is all that he knows so far. That's all that's been revealed to him thus far. These Pharisees aren't actually interested in truth. Verse 26. So the Pharisees said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Hmm. Well, what did he just say? Sounds like they're recognizing his eyes were opened. Verse 27, he answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? <laughs> he just nails their hypocrisy with sarcasm. <laughs> this, this is a man who's beginning to feel the joy. He's feeling the, the compliment. He's feeling the conviction because he knows he's been touched by a man of God. But we see here with this man, he will not back down. He will not change his tune. He will not cave into the peer pressure. And he's not saying, it's not a big deal. We all believe in the same thing. No, right now, this man is being a faithful witness for Christ. Before he has even come to faith in Christ. Think about that. Uh, he's a better witness unsaved than a lot of us who are saved. Yeah. This man will not compromise his confession. He, he has no revere, uh, reverse gear in his box. He's got a lead foot and it's in drive. He's going forward. This brings us to verse 28 and 29. As the Pharisees, if they'd had enough of this little beggar schooling us Pharisees, they explode like an erupting volcano. Verse 21, uh, 28, and they reviled him. We just have the condensed version of this, but they really ripped on him. Um, I looked up this word reviled in the context in the Greek. Uh, Lori uh, Dereo, it means to verbally assault someone, to spew bitter, tasteless statements, to use mean-spirited, insulting words, but it carries the meaning to demoralize someone. It carries the closest meaning to humiliate. To humiliate. This mere beggar has defied us. The Pharisees, do you know who we are? Reviled him. You are his disciples. Again, they can't even stand to say his name. The Lord Jesus Christ, you are his, th that man. By the way, you are his disciple. That's the best thing that they could have said about him. <laughs> You're one of his disciples. That's the best thing anyone could say about you. 
you are a disciple, a learner, someone who sits at the foot of Jesus Christ. But you're not just a learner, you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And anything else good that's said about you should come under that primary identity. You're one of his. You're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 28, but we are disciples of Moses. Here's this breach again. Uh, Moses and Christ, uh, the church and the synagogue, uh, Judaism and Christianity, still at odds all these years later. And these verses here essentially encapsulate the heart of the dispute between Judaism and Christianity. You're a follower of Christ. We follow Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but for this man... uh, We do not know where he comes from. They should have known where he came from. He said over and over again, I am the bread of life that come down out of heaven. He said in John 3, no one has ascended into the Father except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. John 7, he said, you both know me and know where I'm from. I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. Whom you do not know, but I know him because I am from him. He sent me. But when they said we don't know where he comes from, they simply meant not so much the town, but we don't know the origin of this man. We don't know the school that he comes from. Uh, We're unwilling to say, certainly, as John the Baptist was, that he is from God. Uh, No. In fact, they were convinced that he was not from God, that he was from Satan. He works in the power of Satan. This is just a further indication of their hardened, deceived hearts. Oh, and don't forget what Jesus said uh, back in John chapter 5 about this whole Moses thing. Uh, Remember... I think I threw this in here this morning. Remember when Jesus faced off against the leaders at at the end of chapter 5? One one of the greatest chapters um, in in John. Of course, I love them all. Uh, But he said in verse uh, verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Jesus was in this back and forth with the religious leaders. And he says, "Don't, don't think, remember, all judgment from the Father has been given to the Son. Jesus says, do not think that that I'm going to accuse you to the Father. Wait, he just said that, that all judgment's been given to the Son. There is one who accuses you. Moses. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. You don't believe in Moses. Moses prophesied of my coming. You don't believe in Moses. You don't believe in God. Uh, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. Jacob, Judah, David, Daniel, the prophets, they all pointed to this one day that the Messiah 
resurrection would come. This is, uh, I shared this with the Thursday group on Thursday. This is a hymn book. Catch that? Not a hymnal, a hymn book. It's all about him. All of it. What's Jesus telling them over and over again? Moses, Abraham, they wrote about me. They spoke about me. They all pointed to this day. And yet, here are the Pharisees, the keepers of the Mosaic law, and they can't even recognize the Messiah, and he's standing right in front of them. This is what a hardened heart looks like. And it's why John has a story here in chapter 9. You'll notice as we go along, this is a bridge. This chapter is designed to be a bridge to get us to chapter 10 and 11. And it will make a lot more sense as we go. But this blindness is something we're supposed to notice. For you see, it is the blind who now can see in chapter 9. And those who see are in fact the ones who are blind. Next we see this formerly blind man exposed these hypocrite Pharisees' blindness. Verse 30, he said to them, well, here is an amazing thing that you don't know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. The conclusion is obvious. He opened my eyes. He must be from heaven. <laughs> Only God could do this. He has opened my eyes and you don't even know where he's from. Hmm, isn't that interesting? What this man finds so remarkable is not his own belief, but the unbelief of these prominent religious leaders. Again, it, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Where is their joy? Where is their celebration in this great thing that God has done? This man senses there's something not quite right here about this. In verses 31 through 33, the man starts to sound like a preacher. I mean, this guy is really amazing. Uh, he says in verse 31, uh, we know that God does not listen to sinners. This is uh, an Old uh, Testament principle. At the time this is written, I mean, it's in the New Testament as well, but at the time this is written, they only had the Old Testament. He knows the Bible. Psalm 66, 18, if I uh, regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. You are, are dead in your sins. The Lord will not hear me. This man knew his Old Testament. Now, of course, God hears everything. But the Bible teaches if you are not in Christ, if you're not a believer, if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not praying in Jesus' name, God ain't listening. He says, we know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. We don't see this anywhere. If, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. 
This man knew his Old Testament. He knows these kinds of miraculous healings were specific to what the Messiah would be doing. And then he says, if this man were not from God, he, he can do anything. He comes working in the power of God. Sure, today with the advance of science and doctors doing all sorts of crazy stuff, but 2,000 years ago, if you were blind, that's it. So now this man becomes a preacher, and he's taking over this meeting. <laughs> First he's a little bit sarcastic, but now he's preaching faithfully right out of the Old Testament scriptures, to which they respond with outrage. Verse 34, these Pharisees answered him, you were born in utter sin and would teach us, and they cast him out. Cast him out, they threw him out. Be prepared to face this as someone presented with the truth of God's word will reject you. They may even get angry with you. Family members might disown you. But this should not sway us. We are facing a culture today who has become increasingly more intolerant to the message of Christ. So what are we to do about this? Kindness. How can a, a loved one or, or your co-worker, uh, your, your husband or your child be changed? Jesus instructed us just a few chapters back in, in, in John chapter 6. He said three separate times. He said, verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. He said in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Father must draw him. And then in verse 65, he summarizes it. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The only way that your friend, your sister, your child, your co-worker can be released and delivered from this kind of bondage and blindness is by the power of God. So what do we do? We pray. We plead with God to have gracious mercy on this person. And we plead with the sinner to believe, yet, yes, Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. Because the natural man, Paul says, does not understand the things of God. He thinks they're foolishness. So we don't go out to evangelize thinking that we have the power or reasoning or we can do it with our own sort of intellect to shatter the blindness and bondage of unbelief. We go with the truth of God's word. We go in the power of God's spirit and we cry out to God to draw that sinner out of blindness and bondage. We should at all times have someone we are praying for daily, at all times. Just one, every day, every day, that they too will see the light of Christ that has unblinded us and set us free. If you are this morning, we'll have some men and women down front here who would love to pray with you. Will the rest of you please stand for the song of invitation? Oh, I saw the light.